Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented Welcome to you back, by everyone. LOF. Thanks, Ali, for having me again. No worries. Thank you for Thanks, joining us. Um, I, I just want to pick off where Muhammad started um, about the social aspects that led to Karbala. Uh, and for me personally, when, when, when I went through the journey of reading about Ashura and preparing uh, the Majalis in the previous years, um, Mo and I would go through a lot of literature, a lot of content. Uh, we'd mainly assess the events of Karbala itself uh, and how to deliver it to the audience. But what fascinated me more was what social aspects, what social factors led to Karbala. And it was very um, difficult for me to understand this because just trying to fathom the idea of the Muslim nation, and not as a whole, obviously, but the Muslim or individuals in the Muslim nation wanting to kill the grandson of the Prophet, claiming that he had exited the religion, uh, for me, it was hard to understand. I mean, it, it was actually, it was really difficult. So I, I went on a journey to understand what happened before that and what kind of events led to Karbala. Um, one crucial factor for me was the idea or the notion of social justice within Islam. Okay. And um, I came across a book written by a Turkish author, Hamid Inayati. Um, he, he belongs to the Sunni school of thought. Mm. And uh, the book is titled Modern Islamic Political Thought. And, and what he does in the book is he dissects how the two sects differed in their political journeys after the death of the Prophet. And for me, uh, and, and, and according to the literature that I have, um, that I have read, I came to find that in terms of social affairs, the Muslim nation went downhill. Um, the status quo went downhill. The, uh, the idea that a Muslim's honor or financial status went downhill and the, the traditions of the Prophet that were practiced or the traditions that the Prophet wanted to fight within the pre-Islamic era started to come back. And we can see that really again today. So to me, what I, what I really wanted to understand is, were these social factors avoidable? And what would have happened if we actually did avoid them? Because we did have a lot of examples before and after Karbala that echoed the sacrifice of Imam Hussein. So essentially, um, there's, a, there's a general consensus that after the death of the Prophet, there was wild hysteria in, in the Islamic nation. Definitely. And with it came corruption. And as you mentioned, social justice became, it wasn't there anymore. Um, it was removed. And that had started with the, the corruption, even when the prophet was on his deathbed. So was that the instigator for the, the battle of Karbala? 100%. I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, for example, if you were to look at the, the way the, the individuals who claimed leadership after the Prophet, although there was, I mean, there, there were no legitimate grounds for their leadership, especially from a Ithna Ashari perspective. Um, I mean, we can delve into that in a different discussion, but the, uh, the policy that they set definitely led to Karbala and to the killing of um, Imam Hussein. And, and what I mean by that is that Imam Hussein had to, stand in the, in, in the face of injustice and specifically social injustice, just like his brother did, which was the previous imam, which mm. is Imam Hassan. 
and especially like his father did. And if you were to look at, uh, for example, The Voice of a Human Justice by George Jodak, if you were to analyze that, even not from an Islamic perspective, just from a simple social objective perspective, you would find that the policies set by Ali ibn Abi Talib did not agree with those who took leadership after the Prophet. I'll give you an example. So during the time of the second caliph, um, the distribution of the wealth, you know, like we have he Centrelink or in America there's the social uh, security allowance. Yeah. Um, that had changed in how Rasulullah had organized it. And um, when we look at these, the way the second caliph approached these subjects, you would find that there were certain individuals who, would favor, who were favored over others. And that wasn't in accordance to the tradition of the Prophet. Um, although some people might label that as ishtihad, and, and there are arguments, of course, for and against it. But what I want to bring to the, to the table today is that these social factors were very important in determining who actually stood by the sunnah of Rasulullah. Um, so, for example, I mean, even before Karbala occurred, you would look at the revolution led against the third caliph. And the policies set, set by the third caliph um, were really fascinating. And I'd, I'd say they were, I, I don't know how the Islamic society actually accepted at a time. And it shows you how certain people did not really agree with the values that the Prophet had brought with Islam. And that's something that Imam Hussein had to revive through his sacrifice. So if we look um, historically, Muhammad, can we safely assume that Imam Hussein took this uh, revolutionary stance to bring, bring about social justice by carrying on the message of his brother and also his father before him? Of course, there were every single factor before Imam Hussein's uh, revolution in Karbala was basically a door opening to that revolution happening. Um, where, as he was speaking about um, the distribution of wealth and the policies of the third, um, they began empowering the open enemies of uh, of Islam, of Ahlul Bayt, yep. which were Bani Umayyah. Yep. Um, <clears throat> so by them empowering them, it became like with Imam Ali alayhi salam's time. Uh, it was he was trying to fix the mistakes of the previous of the previous. Yep. So we're looking at them as mistakes from a 12er perspective. But if we look at them as, um, as let's say, an Islamic perspective, from the perspective of, let's say, uh, the Holy Prophet, how would Imam Ali would have dealt with this differently um, through the perspective of the Prophet? I'll give you an example. During the time of the third caliph, uh, and, and if you were to read a, uh, one of uh, the books of uh, Sayyid Muhammad Qutb, he belongs to the Sunni school of thought. Mm. He labels Uthman, the third caliph, and I, I, I don't mean this with any offensive um, intentions. Um, he labels his government as that of nepotism, whereby when he was placed in power in, in, in a very absurd way, the way the third caliph came into yeah. power, I mean, we can come into that discussion <coughs> another time. When he came into power and uh, you saw that certain individuals who the prophet had exiled, you know, he told them, you are, you are to leave Medina. I'm not going to uh, perform revenge. You know, I, I, I remember this distinctly that when Rasulullah entered Mecca and one of the Qurayshis um, yelled out, today 
or I'll say in Arabic first, al-yawm yawmul malhama. So mm. today we're all going to get butchered because the things that they've done to Rasulullah, I'll give you one example. Rasulullah would be praying and they'd open the, the stomach of a cow or a sheep on him. Mm. I mean, to bear that as a human just for the message of God, just for the oneness of God. And he's coming back after all that, you know. Mm. One of the members of Quraysh goes, al-yawm yawmul malhama. Today is the day where we're going we're gonna to get all butchered. Rasulullah replies, and this fascinates me. Honest, it, it, it sends shivers down my spine. Rasulullah goes, no. Al-yawm yawmul marhama. Today is the day of mercy. And why am I going all the way back to Rasulullah? Like, why do I have to go about 40 to 30 years back for, for a certain individual to understand events to happen 61 AH. Mm. So going back to uh, the policy set by the third caliph, when he was in power, the governors that you saw, you know, in, in, in the regions where the Islamic state or the Islamic government had ruled, they were all part of Bani Umayyah. So no other individuals were actually ruling on behalf of the Muslim nation. Mm. The amount of corruption was completely absurd. I'll give you one example. Uh, one of Uthman's cousins and his brother, uh, his brother through breastfeeding, and if, if, if you guys want to look at that from a jurisprudential perspective, it'd be interesting. Um, he was a, the governor of Medina, and uh, uh, I, I believe his name is Al-Walid ibn Utbah. Mm. Not the best type of people. I would definitely not take him as an example. Um, one story I remember reading um, is that he, I mean, he, he really liked his wine, really loved his alcohol. And of course, he's a governor. He had to lead prayer. And in one instance, he prayed the morning. Instead of praying two rikahat, he prayed four. Another and one. he turns around. And, and this is actually in Islamic books. This is not something that is hidden. This is not something that you have to really search for. This is there. He turns around. He goes, you guys want more? Like the more the merrier in a way. So I said another one. <laughs> and it's pretty tragic. A governor who is a representative of the prophet himself is praying for the kaat instead of two. And I'm not trying to bring the whole idea of social justice or Islamic justice into salat. Mm. Because if you were to look at the policies of Imam Ali salam after coming into power, the people had realized that the selection of the first, second, or third, if it was a selection, you know, we could, we could talk later about how they did come into power and what social factors impacted that. But when Imam, when, when, sorry, when the Imam did come into power, the Imam, Imam Ali alayhi salam, of course, came into power through methods that differed from the, 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 the previous three. And it, it shows the first instance, and if I could use the word, maybe it's not even a term, the first instance of actual Islamic democracy where the people flocked all to Ali's house mm -hmm. and told him it's been years after the death of the Prophet, the Sunnah has collapsed the affairs of the Muslim is abysmal um, social justice is, is a myth at this point we need you and the Imam tells him are you sure? Are you sure you want to handle my justice? Are you sure you want this? So it's my understanding that Imam Ali actually refused uh, to take leadership at the, in the first instance. The Imam knew that the, the people that Rasulullah dealt with didn't change. Mm. And if Imam 
I mean, he did come into power, but in, in, I mean, in his mind, when he wanted to come into power after the three, the main issues he focused on, and, and it's, the, it's the main issues that Imam Hussein sacrificed himself for, was social justice, was the idea that an individual in a Muslim nation, in a, under a Muslim government, is honoured just because he's a citizen, mm. not because he relates to the caliph, not because he fought this certain battle. So if you look at the time of Uthman, for example, certain people were getting more money from the treasury of the Muslim. You know, for example, uh, individual A, like Talha or Zubair, would get more than a normal individual who just converted to Islam. Mm. So irrespective of a guy praying to Rikhat or for Rikhat, the way that the social affairs were dealt with were completely corrupt. So the Imam had to deal with that in a way and it's pretty fascinating. He had to deal with it in a way where he had to attend to justice as soon as possible. And the first thing that he did, the first thing that Imam Ali salam did was dismiss all the governors that Uthman had. And it's pretty fascinating. It wasn't, hey man, don't fold your hands in prayer. Mm. Realize that. It wasn't like, oh man, you guys aren't technically doing the fuqhi or the jurisprudential aspects as per the tradition of the Prophet. Mm. He focused on Baytul Mal. And I remember reading um, in Nahj al-Balagha, which is the book um, of eloquence written by uh, uh, Sharif al-Radi. It's a compilation of the Imam's speeches and, and sayings. Fascinating book. And it, 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 this really surprised me, to be honest, uh, because, uh, I mean, the way the Imam dealt with it, you'll find it in this, in this saying. They come to his house, they wanted to be a caliph. It wasn't like, oh, hey, let's sit in a room and choose one. Mm. The people came. The people determined that Ali was going to fix the issues. So Imam Ali is attentive to, we want you as the caliph. Imam Ali goes, are you sure? Because if I'm going to come into power, if I'm going to be your ruler, I'm going to be very just. And the question is, are you able to handle justice? Are you able to sacrifice that freedom that you claim that you want? That was the question, basically. That you were asking uh, about refusal. Mm. They didn't refuse, but deep down he knew that I don't think they're ready for this. They, they can't handle. Is it? Is that? Is that because Imam Ali had understood that they had been through so many years of injustice that they didn't even know was happening, or were they they were oblivious to? And Imam Ali responded in this way because he's like, "Well, okay, you guys are used to three caliphs dealing in a way that I'm gonna do the." complete opposite like 180 degrees difference and they won't be able to handle because it it's 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 hard to adapt to a new system of of justice and especially knowing that imam ali was uh, side by side with the prophet basically living and breathing the message of the prophet definitely man i even you even see it in instances other than imam ali you you would see that even during the time of the three that came after the prophet um one individual that I would definitely reference is Sayyida Fatima. Mm. Sayyida Fatima, uh, I remember in that book, Hamid Inayat, he, he explains this in, in a fascinating way. He goes, when Abba Dhar and Sayyida Fatima stood for the right of the Muslims for social justice, this was the first example of anti-capitalism Islamic history. Mm. So look at what scope and Look at what idea these guys are trying to propagate. They were way ahead of their time, by far way ahead of their time. So when the imam came into power and an individual A would get, for example, $60 for, 
from the government. Mm-hmm. Or, and the other individual would get 100. And different people would get different amounts. And then Ali came into power and he'd be like, you know what? Everybody's getting three dinar or three dollars. Mm-hmm. People are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not used to this. Irrespective of God is one, two, three, or four, I'm not getting the money that I used to get. Mm-hmm. So Ali, what's to go? Like, why is this happening? And that's why you, you saw individuals like Talha and Zubair wage war in Jamal. It's surprising. Talha and Zubair were very close to the Imam. And it was those examples and those lessons that the Muslims never learned from again and again and again and again all the way till Karbala took place. And I would say, I don't think they've learned till now. Till now, yeah. Definitely. I mean, look at countries in the Middle East. Yeah. Definitely. The, the, the corruption is rife and the, the economies are collapsing left, right and center. People are putting their hands into countries when the people, the, the actual uh, citizens of those nations aren't really receiving the benefits of, of resources, of the economy. Definitely. And you've got outside powers actually putting their hands into these countries and just basically taking whatever they want. 100%. So is it, we have a question from... Um, from one of the boys, is it? He says, "Is it safe to say that the tribal ideologies against all social rights at the time of the Holy Prophet that he tried to abolish came back at the time of the first three caliphs? And if so, how did it again disappear at the time when Imam Ali became the leader of the Muslims?" I'll give you an example. Actually, I, I know a specific story that would answer that question. I was talking earlier about Walid ibn Utbah. Yep. I'll give you some context about that guy. Walid ibn Utbah was sent to Yemen convert the people to Islam, right? The Prophet had told him, go to Yemen, tell the people about Islam, and hopefully, you know, they, they accept the ideology. They don't agree with Walid. There's some indifference that happens. And then the Prophet has to send Ali ibn Abi Talib instead. The people of Yemen fall in love with Ali ibn Abi Talib. And if you were to look later, the closest disciples to Ali were all from Yemen, yeah. like Malik ibn al-Ashtar. Like, Definitely. Yeah. Anyhow, Walid, when I said earlier, he prayed four rak'at instead of two and was drunk. The law, the law at that time was, okay, you need, you need to be whipped. You know, there's, there's a, uh, there is a, uh, a legal repercussion for your actions. Yeah. You need to be whipped for this. No one would approach to do that. Osman was the caliph at the time. He's his brother through breastfeeding and his cousin. People were afraid, you know. We have this, this idea of wasta yeah. in, in the Arab world where um, – if you know certain A or you're connected to certain A, you're protected from the, from the law or you're above the law. And no one would approach Walid to implement the Islamic repercussion that the Prophet came down to introduce. Mm. The only person who did that, surprise, I'm not surprised, no, it was Ali. Ali ibn Abi Talib did it with no fear of repercussions because he knew that Ali himself knew in his inner self he is ready to establish justice at any cost available, even at the cost of death, which we saw in Karbala. So at this point, did the, um, Muhammad, did the Islamic nation accept the justice of Imam Ali salam towards uh, Walid ibn Utbah? No. Or, or was, there, was there like repercussions and uproar and of like, what was. are you doing? Of course it was, because Imam Ali, as he was saying, as he was fixing, it was also, they were also waging wars against him. So what, basically he spent his entire caliphate while he was fixing, they were waging wars against him because obviously they didn't, do, they didn't like the way Imam Ali did things. So there were grudges held because of previous events and, and with the previous caliphs and especially at the time of the Holy Prophet as well? 
Yeah, of course. Um, I want to mention something he, he was mentioning about, about that prayer, for example, yep. Walid Mahabda, just to show the difference between the, the ones that upheld uh, the Prophet's teachings. teachings and the ones who obviously didn't. Because there's a lot of, uh, nowadays, you know, people ask, and there's a lot of arguments about it. It's like, oh, you know, for the sake of unity. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did Malik do, the one we read, when they, when they said, oh, everyone go pray, you know, separate? He said no. He said we yeah, don't we don't follow right. him Jamaa, but we pray together. Mm. That's correct. So to keep that unity, so, so so they don't show that we're you know we're disunited. So a lot of people said that Imam Ali salam, for example, didn't. Um, oh, but he gave bayah to to the caliphs and whatnot. No, he was there, so there's no disunity in the ummah. And while he's doing you know this and and things are going downhill as well. And just to go also back to favoritism and how you're saying, you know, individual nepotism, a, yeah, nepotism, yeah. Individual A gets more money and whatnot. What did Imam Ali do when his brother? Yeah, came? your own brother, your own family is coming to you for help. Yeah. And you're, you're establishing justice at your own home. It's not like, hey, I'm just, you get three dinar, you get three dinar. Then your brother comes and be like, hey, man, I'm doing it tough. And Akil was doing it tough. Mm. And he goes, man, I just need a little bit more. I think he asked for like a, like a bowl of, uh, of wheat more. That's all. It's, mm. It was really nothing. And what does the imam do? I mean, we all know this. He, to, to us, it's nothing. Yeah, but it's huge. But so so, so yeah. just, just for the sake of understanding the social justice of Imam Ali, let's yeah. delve into that, that, that specific yeah. instance. So, so the imam was the head of the state. The imam was the khalifa. The imam was the number one individual. Right, and he, the people around him, his family, didn't live in 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 uh, like a, a mansion, mm. ordinary home. Akil comes to him because, man, I need I need more. I'm obviously I'm paraphrasing here mm. because I need just a little bit more. The Imam replies by heating like a like a lodge of iron, just hot enough, and he just brings it close to Akil. He doesn't let it touch Akil mm. because that's dhulm, and yeah. and an Imam would never do that. Yep. And Akil's like, whoa, that's hot. Mm. And Imam's like, man, you're afraid of that. How do you think I would be afraid from the one that God prepares? Mm. I'm going to be just at any cost possible. Literally any cost possible. I'll give you another example. He was a caliph, head of state. You're the head of state. No one can talk to you. Yeah, give you, me an Arab country want. where the head of state is as humble as Ali ibn Abi Talib. Give me a Western country that the head of state operates like Ali ibn Abi Talib. He was a caliph, right? Mm. And Ali's known as a great warrior. I don't want to delve into the traits of his, um, his fights because I don't need to. There's no need, There's no need to do that. It speaks for itself. The imam had a shield. Christian took the shield. Christian's like, hey man, that's mine. Right? Mm. Let's notice a Christian living in an Islamic state yeah. or under an Islamic government. The imam's like, no, it's mine. All right, let's go to court. So the Christian, understand this, the Christian, a Christian individual, a Christian citizen is taking the head of the Muslim state to court. to court to be ruled by a Muslim judge. So you'd think there'd be bias there. Yeah, I want to show you how just this Imam was. And I know we're focusing on Imam Ali now a lot. And it's like, oh, what about Karbala? But yeah. I want to show you what kind of Islamic atmosphere the, the Imam was trying to create and how the people just kept refusing it because they couldn't handle it. And it really begs the question, can I handle it? Can, mm. can we handle it? Mm. So they go to court. I think the, the judge was Shurayh al-Qadi, yep. I believe. 
Um, I mean, he, he, he had another trajectory in history, uh, especially with Karbala. So Shuraih addresses the Christian, you know, by his name, and he goes, and then Amir al-Mu'minin, which is the prince of believers, yeah. or it's, a, it's a, uh, uh, a, a title given to the ruler. Imam was like, whoa, whoa, stop. We haven't even started, and there's injustice. Not injustice on me, injustice on the guy the who's trying to steal his shield. Yeah. Like, can you fathom that? Yeah. So he's protecting the guy that's that's basically like, yep. he's trying to rob him. Yep. <laughs> then the judge is like, okay, do you have any witnesses? Imam Ali's like, I have Imam Hassan, Imam Hussein. He goes, we can't use them as witnesses. Conflict yara, yara, yara. Yeah. And he goes, the shield belongs to the Christian. Imam Ali accepts the verdict. He goes, okay, the, the shield's yours. And the Christian's like, whoa. I took the head of state to court. I stole his shield. And then I lost and the man accepted that decree and didn't use his power mm. to influence it. The man gave his shield back and he goes, man, I, I want to follow you now. So you see those same examples, they're replicated in Ashura. They're replicated when uh, Imam Hussein uh, wanted to bring down the hegemony of Bani Umayyah. And that hegemony was established and it began with the third caliph. There is no two ways about it. Look at every Islamic historian, you will see that the sunnah of Rasulullah, both in a social aspect and a religious aspect, went downhill, especially with the third caliph. Especially when Bani Umayyah started to come into Islam, you started seeing things like, whoa, man, let's bring back the pre-Islamic era because that was better. Yeah, definitely. That was better so than what was going on at the moment. Tribal mentality and, and basically wanting everything for themselves. Of course. So if the people had seen the justice of Imam Ali in full display. It was there every day of, of his rulership. Why is it that they, they rejected his son, Imam Hassan salam, from the caliphate and were more inclined to follow Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan? Look, Muawiyah was an interesting individual. Muawiyah came into power after his brother was ruler of Sham. I think his brother is called Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan. He was appointed during the second caliph. And after he passed away, Muawiyah came to power. Uh, and Muawiyah really was, was operating as he liked. I, I believe Muawiyah had a propaganda. I believe Abu Sufyan had a propaganda during Uthman's time. Uh, so there was a, a, a intentional, uh, an, an, an intentional uh, set of behaviors to delineate people from the Islamic thought that Rasulullah had prepared them. And it's actually very, um, very obvious because only, 20 feet, only 25 years after the Prophet passed away, he had his wife and very close companions wage war on the present caliph, who was Ali ibn Abi Talib. Mm. And the way the imam dealt with it, wow, you can't replicate that. You can't make this up, yeah. really. You can't make this up. And the imam was very conscious on the attempts he had to do in order to rectify the mistakes that happened. And to me, it's just fascinating that the, the, the people didn't learn. I'll give you an example. One of the companions um, of the Imam went to visit Muawiyah. And like I said, Muawiyah had a propaganda. I believe Muawiyah was some sort of a genius. You know, a lot of people don't like to hear that, but credit has to be given yeah, when it's due. It's true. Yeah, definitely. And he knew, he knew how to, how to uh, talk to the masses. So the masses are there. Obviously, he had established a stronghold in Sham. He goes to the companion, he goes, hey, you, you ran away from the dhulm of Ali. 
the guy responds, he goes, no, definitely not. I ran away from the Adil of Ali. Mm. Let me translate that. He goes, did you run away from Ali due to injustice? No. The guy replies, I ran away from Ali's justice. It's wow. Too, it's too much to handle. Wow. So if that was the case, and Imam Ali salam had, had, had basically reintroduced the message of the Holy Prophet into, into the fold of Islam. Definitely. And then Muawiyah comes along and basically goes back to his old ways or the old ways of Bani Umayyah and Abu Sufyan and, and basically the, the attack on Islam that had started pre of course. Um, uh, the Prophet going to, to Medina. Mm-hmm. Um, and we find that the, the, the journey of the corruption of, of the religion of Islam continued all the way through to Imam Hussain So now we have Yazid in power. Imam Hussein is on his way to Mecca. Okay. And Muslim Naqil is on his way to Kufa. Definitely. Okay. Go, and go back. Go back. Go back. We'll start with Imam Hassan Because basically Karbala, as we know, can't couldn't have happened as uh, um, as a, a, a right a rightful battle from the side of Imam Hussein as being an Imam, a Hujjah. Of course. Right? Of God on earth. If it wasn't for Imam Hassan. Yeah. And especially the treaty that was made between Imam Hassan and Muawiyah, which was that, that if you read the treaty, you know, you know, do not attack the Muslims. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, distribution of wealth. It was similar to the treaty of Rasulullah. Yes, yeah, exactly. similar to Hadabi. I believe there was like 15 uh, policies that Imam Hassan uh, made Muawiyah sign. I mean, Muawiyah after it, Ripped the paper and stepped on it. The, the paper meant nothing. Yeah, yeah. And when you go even further, when your prophet telling you, "Hey, man, let me write." When this happened on a Thursday, it's known as the calamity of, calamity Thursday, of Thursday, right? So, what does the paper really mean, really, right? Mm. The prophet was on his deathbed. He's like, "Hey, let me write you something that you won't go astray." And certain individuals are like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" The prophet's gone delirious. Or if you want to look look at the other interpretations, the the pain has overwhelmed the prophet. Yeah. The book of Allah is enough for us. Yeah. Really? I, I, I don't really understand what he meant by that or what his intentions were. So when you look at that sulh that was established between Imam Hassan and Muawiyah, after, after it was established, Muawiyah ripped the paper, stepped on it. And then now, 10 years later, after the death of Imam Hassan, you find Karbal had to take place. And one important piece of literature I would refer you to is the book of Abu Mukhnaf, yep. which is one of the earliest books written in terms of the events of Karbala. And in the beginning of the book, he focuses on one important aspect. It's the letter of Muawiyah to Yazid. And if you compare that letter to the letter Imam Ali left to Imam Hassan and Hussein, it's two ends of the spectrum. Mm. One was used in the UN, by the way. Yep. And the one used in the UN was not that of Muawiyah. I can assure you that. Mm. The UN has actually referenced the... Uh, the uh, the will of Ali to Malik and to his kids in the United Nations. And you see such difference of behavior. And it fascinates me how someone would say, yeah, Muawiyah did ishtihad, it's fine. 
You know, he he thought he was right, but he was really wrong. Mm, I think it's more complicated than that. Of course, yeah, of it's course, it's right? way more complicated. When you look at it in the grand scheme of things, it's yeah, it's definitely it's a lot more than what it is. So now, let's take the journey uh, with Imam Hussein. Yeah, the most important part of that paper that Muawiyah tore up and stepped on was that Imam Hussein rules after, not Yazid. Mm. So that was signed. That treaty being broken was the rightful excuse for Imam Hussein. So th- th- that basically was like, okay, you've broken a treaty and by breaking that treaty, I have the right to rise up. Exactly. Okay, so now Imam Hussein in his position, in his position, he's, he's being exiled. Okay, and, and they're telling him, spill your blood in the Holy Land. Yep, even, even in the Kaaba part. Yeah. They, they told him, we'll spill your blood in the purest of places. So what's, what's Imam Hussein thinking at this moment? What's, what's, his, okay, what's his plan now? I am very, very, very happy that you asked that. I'd like to reference Shahid Mutahari, mm. amazing Iranian author. He writes, he has a book called The Truth of Hussein's Revolt. Yep. Amazing book, very short, but very, very informative. And in that book, he states that the imam did not rise over emotions or anger, which isn't really the image we actually give during our majalis. He continues to talk and say, because the imam calculated every step. And that's an example when you understand why would he take his women with him? Yeah. You know, you're, you, you literally have like a, like there's like a death penalty on you. Yazid, Decreed, you're going to give me bay'ah or you are gone. You're dead, you know? Mm. And then he takes his women with him. It really doesn't make sense. But in, in reality, the imam had overseen and was thinking way and way ahead. And when you look at it now in retrospect, when you look at the role of Sayyidah Zainab in Sham and how she addressed Yazid, you start to understand like, oh, that message was carried out by the women. The mission of Imam Hussein was definitely carefully calculated and he saw beyond his own martyrdom. Definitely. Um, and was looking towards the future of the Muslims and he put that future in the hands of Sayyidah Zainab. Yep, definitely. Where, to the point where she protected the next Imam. Yep. She, she stood in front of him and protected him. She exactly. used herself as a human shield to protect <clears throat> the next Imam. So Imam Hussein had this was all premeditated it wasn't as if like okay let's just go yeah, with the no, flow let's no. see what happens it was not emotional at all this was very 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 much calculated and at the end of the day imam hussein was a general of course it wasn't just an imam like going to spread a mes- message he, w- he was a general he had an army behind him but now in the situation of imam hussein you're traveling to karbala having received some narration say 14000 letters asking for him to come to Kufa and they want him to lead them. So what went wrong there? Wow. I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question. I I believe, I mean, the general answer you'd get firstly is, oh, it was Ahlul Kufa. And and I'd like to step back from that because it wasn't really Ahlul Kufa. In reality, if you were to look at Ahlul Kufa, they were among the most individuals who were accepting the leadership of the Imam, even towards the time of Imam Ali. You yep. also have a lot of uh, warriors that joined Imam Hussein that were from, from Kufa. From, exactly. 
But what went wrong is what was going wrong all along. People did not want the justice, the true justice of Islam. Is it, is it because they didn't want it or because they were incapable of living in a system of complete justice? Exactly. Yeah, I, I would go definitely with option B. Definitely. So now you've got a tyrant ruler um, in Kufa and in Sham. And your imam, who your prophet has basically said like, this is your guy. This is who you follow. And 14,000 letters are sent. Muslim is sent to Kufa to basically figure out what's going on. Like, where, where are we now? That's correct. So at, at that point, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the situation in Kufa was in favor of Imam Hussein. The people were ready. You know, you, you see letters in, um, in detail, companions that were with, uh, with, with the Prophet in early days that were writing. Yeah. And they were telling them, Hussein, come, like, we are ready, we are behind you. And Muslim had, Muslim al-Aqil, which was Imam Hussein's cousin, he had sent a letter to Imam Hussein telling him, all right, things are, things are flowing, things are in motion, come to Kufa and let's establish Islah, let's establish uh, reforms. And I'd like to use that word specifically because we hear a lot of, uh, about it today and, and it really never happens, but that was the intention of the Imam. So social reform. Social reform, yep. exactly. I did not come as a tyrant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I came so, to reform the, the religion of my grandfather. Yeah, I look at it like, it, it's like the Imam knew what we were going to think and he's answering that question, he's answering our questions through that open or public intention. So he publicly made that intention. Yeah. And, and just uh, to go back to the letters that um, were sent from Kufa, a lot of them were very specific and mentioned very specific things. And um, I think it's Sayyid ibn Tawus in, in his book, Luhuf ala qatalat al or The Pangs of Sorrow um, on the events of Karbala. Um, he actually uh, has those letters in the book. And like you see some of them, they're addressed to Imam Hussein and they're saying basically like, we're ready to go. Yep. Tell us what you need. We're at your service. Yeah. But then Muslim Aqil in the mosque, he turns around. There's no one, no one behind you. There's no one there. So again, it was the propaganda of Bani Umayyah. The same steps so, Muawiyah had used. Fear-mongering. Fear-mongering, yeah. Um, propaganda. So when they found out that Imam Hussein was headed towards uh, Kufa, he sent Ibn Ziyad yep. as, uh, as the uh, leader to, to lead Kufa, yep. um, as a governor of Kufa. But he entered dressed as Imam Hussein. That's right. And, and the, the people, people believed it. The people believed it. Yeah. So there was there was a lack of awareness, really. Like there was a lack of really intense awareness to actually understand what was going on. Is that again because they had been so ingrained in this system that was so far from the actual religion of the Holy Prophet that they, they were just like whatever it is, it is exactly. And people were kind of sick of it. Like you know, a lot. A lot of, uh, sorry, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said, you know, Ahl Kufa, yeah. the people of Kufa. I said, no, okay, you can't say that. Okay, you can't, every time someone says, oh, you know, people of Kufa, they betrayed, they betrayed. No, you have some of them that were literally pummeled with feet, mm. um, public executions to basically scare them into- Into silence. Silence. Yeah. You had propaganda. You had um, people that were tired of wars. You know, they just wanted to live. They just, they just wanted to be Muslims and like 
enough's enough. Yeah. Whoever the caliph we're is, not, is the caliph. We're not talking from a Torah perspective. Yeah, no, no, definitely. You know, like the imam came, so you must follow him. No, no, no. Like from an Islamic oh, wow. perspective, this is an Islamic nation yeah. that had literally from the death of the prophet been through war after war yeah. after war. Imam Ali, you said it yourself, like his whole, his whole caliphate, his whole leadership was riddled with wars. Yeah, three wars. Imam and, faced three wars. Because of that as well, like mentioning Imam Ali, the person that actually planned the assassination or, you know, um, put out the word was basically sick of wars mm. because her father and her brother was killed in, they were in, killed. in, they the, were wars, killed in the wars, fighting with Imam Ali. That's right. You know? So she's like, it's because of him, you know, war after war after. And the thing is, we're looking at it from a, you know, a general. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> we're not looking at it from, oh, we hate her. Or, you no, know, no, no. We're looking at it from yeah. a perspective like, okay, where, where, this social injustice was so rife in, in the Definitely. religion of Islam. Correct. Definitely. So now, this Muslim nation, or let's let's go specifically in Kufa, under the governorship of Ibn Ziyad, they are tired of wars. They are bombarded with propaganda. Exactly. Scared into silence, and basically they're just tired. Like. Yep, to put it simply, to of put course. it simply, they're just tired of, that was a big of everything well. that's going on. So, what led them to this? Okay, they're tired, but what led them to turning on Muslim Naqil, knowing he's the the cousin of the Imam and the the messenger of the Imam, coming to basically tell them, okay, stimulate your mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcast, where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.